What's up, folks? Welcome to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, the founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. What does Whoop do? We build wearable technology. We measure things like sleep and recovery and stress. We help you become a better version of yourself. At least that's our mission. And you can find the technology at whoop.com. If you don't have a Whoop membership, you can get 15% off your Whoop membership by using the code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. This week's guest is a brilliant leader in sports medicine and exercise physiology, Dr. Kevin Sprouse. He works with some of the best athletes on the planet, including baseball and football players, Olympians, some of the top professional golfers on the PGA Tour, and Particularly relevant right now, Kevin is also the medical director for the EF Pro Cycling Team, which is one of the top 10 cycling teams in the world and competing right now in the Tour de France. So he is actively using Whoop right now on his athletes at the Tour de France. Whoop is proud to be the official wearable of EF. That's a partnership we just announced in the past few days. And we're excited to be helping the EF team train and recover during the Tour de France. Kevin and I discuss why he got into this particular field of medicine, the critical role data plays in training elite cyclists, and really a lot of different sports. We go deep on a bunch of different sports. Why the pill for every ill mindset is misguided, his tips and tricks for optimizing performance, and how he uses WHOOP in his own life and why he recommends it to his patients. I think Kevin has a really insightful point of view on Whoop and more broadly sports medicine. And uh, without further ado, here is Kevin. Kevin, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Hey, Will. Thanks. It's good to be here. So how would you describe what it is that you do? That's a good question. Um, Jumping right into it. So I'm I'm a sports medicine physician, uh, but probably not what most people think of as a typical sports medicine doc. Uh, I trained in exercise physiology prior to med med school. And when I started my practice, I was pretty adamant that I wanted to bring uh, exercise physiology, nutrition, performance into medicine. What I had seen is that, you know, it's not novel to say it now, but there was a lot of focus on disease and how things go bad. But we didn't really focus on how to make someone who's healthy perform better and not in a nefarious way. Like there's been, um, that's well detailed in history, right? How doctors get into sports and pull all kinds of levers that they shouldn't be pulling, but rather to look at the literature because really in sports medicine and and sports performance it's the only body of literature we have that looks at patients who are well, who have no ongoing disease processes and says, what can we do? to support their performance. So I wanted to bring that into sports medicine here in the US, which was kind of lacking at the time. So that's that's what I do. And you get to work with fascinating, uh, high-performing people. I mean, across Olympians, PGA Tour players, NFL players, MLB triathletes. I mean, uh, we're going to talk hopefully a little bit about cycling. You know, w- was it obvious for you that you were going to go down go down this path? It was, but that's easy to say. There's a lot of a lot of doctors who get into sports medicine wanting to work with athletes, and it doesn't happen. Sure. Um, 
it was obvious to me that that's what I wanted to do. And fortunately, right out of fellowship training, which was my subspecialty training in sports medicine, um, I started working with the EF cycling team. It wasn't EF at the time, but it was the same program. So I've been doing that now for about 10 years. Um, and then the rest of my practice kind of built on the back of that. And I started working with other endurance athletes, triathletes, runners, track and field. Um, the first pole vaulter that came into the office, I didn't quite know what to do with um, <laughs> just from a, from a sporting standpoint. But the tenets of performance often carry over between sports. And so when um, that extended into you know, baseball, football, and then golf, uh, Scott Stallings, who's been on your podcast, was the sure. first golfer I started working with about three years ago. And when he came in, we had a little bit of a conversation that, you know, I understand the physiology, I understand performance. I'm not a golfer. Um, so, you know, that part we may have to learn together. Um, and now I've got eight PGA guys I work with. Tell me, so EF cycling, uh, would you say that was sort of your biggest leap into uh, into sports medicine? And obviously there's so much that goes into a Tour de France as an example. It, it definitely was the biggest leap. And it's cycling is interesting from a sports medicine and performance standpoint in that there are so many measured variables and metrics that we follow. You know, heart rate, power output, all the time, distance, climbing metrics. Um, that it's, it's kind of a playground for somebody who's into the science of performance. And you'll see, even in the sports performance literature, what typically is used as the prototypical sport when, when testing something, you know, testing a theory or testing a, a, a supplement or a training regimen, whatever, is cycling because you can control for so many things around those variables. So for me to go straight into cycling, which was also just a passion of mine, was both fun, but also I think a little bit fortuitous with respect to the rest of my career. Yeah. I mean, in some ways to me, cycling almost feels like the pinnacle of, of like a sports medicine control group because it seems so isolated around performance, right? Like the person who is the most finely tuned is, you know, is the person who wins and like, you just can't say that about most sports, you know, because there's, there's a, a huge talent component to other sports that that's, you know, I mean, Tiger Woods won a U.S. Open on a, on like a broken leg. Right. So right. that, that was, that was hardly optimal. Now, if you think about cycling, let's start there. What, what was something that you, you know, observed maybe in, in the first couple of years that over time you, you were able to start influencing? I think, I mean, without a doubt, the answer to that question comes to mind quickly and it's sleep. When I got to my first race on the world tour, I'll never forget. I came with this big medical kit. I had all the bandages I could need. I had, you know, the medications I thought I would need. And very quickly, I realized the number one most common concern or complaint of these athletes was I can't sleep. And to me, as kind of a recreational cyclist, a, a day on the bike would wear me out and I'd sleep great. So I got there and I was immediately scratching my head. I was like, why can these guys not sleep? This is, this is crazy. This is not what I expected to be encountering. Um, and then as I learned more, one, I mean, there's lots that goes into it, but there's the fact that races end typically in the afternoon or early evening. They've maybe had a caffeine gel to, to finish it off, whether that's a climb or a sprint. They're all amped up. Dinner is late. There was a transfer. There's travel. Um, it really doesn't set itself up well to be a good sleep environment. You're in a hotel. Sometimes there's not air conditioning. It's the middle of summer. And so 
that we had to start kind of back engineering a little bit. And very early on, we recognized that, um, you know, sleep medication wasn't the way to go. It has its place, but not as a common use. Um, what would so be an example we, of sleep medication that, that was used, but probably not optimal for this group? Yeah, like, um, like an Ambien. Uh, okay, which, so something pretty, pretty intense, pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah, which you'll see across sports. Um, I think there's been a big move away from, but just, uh, I mean, cycling was no different, that there tended to be an overly pharmacologic response. And there was nothing, there's nothing banned about it. There's nothing that is just straight up bad medicine. But to me, if our goal is performance, and we know that these type of pharmaceutical aids for sleep are not really fostering the best restorative sleep, then that wasn't the way to go. Well, that's such a, just, just on that point, that's such a great point because we've seen a lot of data on sleep alongside Ambien. I mean, because a lot of our WHOOP members take Ambien or, or have experimented with it. And what we've seen is it makes the, your sleep latency. So how fast you fall asleep much faster. So people will fall asleep much faster than they otherwise would. But the quality of that sleep, in particular, your REM and slow wave sleep is depressed. And especially for Tour de France competitors, I mean, slow wave sleep, when you're producing 95% of your human growth hormone, that's got to be so important. So it makes all, all the sense in the world that you try to move away from that. Oh, it's massively important. The, I mean, the big determiner stage to stage on who does well across the entire tour is how well you can recover and go again the next day. So the deep sleep and like you said, the physical uh, recovery restoration there, hugely important, but the REM sleep too, you've got to be able to uh, kind of approach the next day with focus and, you know, get to the important points in the race with your mental wits about you. And so if, if you're sacrificing both of those performance, especially in the long term, is going to really suffer. So you were saying, okay, it used to be, you know, there used to be more of the on the ambient side and then you guys rethought it. So what are some of the things that you've introduced that you feel like have been successful? It's, it's a lot of the stuff that you've probably heard sleep experts talk about is sleep hygiene. So it's recognizing that, you know, staying up and watching a movie on your iPad is going to detrimentally impact your sleep. But if you've been in the tour all day and you want to prop your feet up and just relax, that's what you tend to do. So there's education around that, teaching the guys that, hey, that's not, that's not ideal. Read a book if, if you can, and a lot, not if you can, they can all read. But if, if you can, if, if that kind of does the trick for you, right, um, go to a book. But if not, maybe use blue light blocking sunglasses or, or glasses. And we implemented those with one of our partners five or six years ago, I think, um, for the guys to use in the evenings when they're, you know, watching a movie or even FaceTiming the family or something like that before bed. Uh, We look at the temperature in the rooms because again, some places don't have air conditioning. Uh, We've played with devices like the chili pad and brought those in. Sure. Um, That I think we first did that maybe five years ago. Um, We've got portable air conditioning units that we've taken to some races. And so we're always trying to figure out how to basically hack the basics when we're on the road, the same stuff that you would do at home and that we'd hear about for typical sleep hygiene. We just want to bring that on the road and put that into play in place of prescriptions. Basically. Have you looked at sleep consistency too? So trying to get folks to go to bed and wake up at the same time, or is that harder with the schedule? It's harder, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't approach it. Um, right, right. Sometimes it's out of your control, in which case yeah. 
we don't want the guys catastrophizing about it, right? Like if you can't control it, don't, don't sweat it, move on. But when you can, let's move toward that. So, so last year at the tour, we had one guy whose sleep was declining, his HRV was declining, kind of everything you would expect to see with declining sleep. Like he just wasn't recovering. Yeah. And pointed it out, made some small changes and just kind of set things back on track. And it wasn't rocket science, but when you can see the data and you can, you can correct before it's problematic, then, I mean, that's kind of ideal in sports, right? You don't want to get to where there's a problem. You want to beat it before that. Well, it's a very whoop mindset. You know, we, we always say you can only manage what you measure. And so yeah. if, if you think it's important to be able to improve your sleep, you need to measure it, right? And look at the different baselines and look at how it's changing. And it sounds like you've really brought a lot of that to TF uh, Cycling. Now, and by the way, it's so interesting listening to you talk about this with like the most finely tuned athletes in the world, because it's the same stuff that we're telling, you know, executives, you know, everyday consumers in terms of how they can improve their lives. You know, you're talking about colder bedrooms, darker bedrooms, sleep consistency, uh, you know, darker room, get off your devices. If you're going to be on your devices, use blue light blocking glasses. You know, that's what I think is so fascinating about sports. I think it's so fascinating about the work that you do is that you're creating a bridge that is attainable and aspirational at the same time, right? The best athletes in the world are doing this to win the tour de France and guess what? You can do it at home. Yeah. And that, I mean, in a nutshell, that's kind of what I love about sports medicine is that in my practice, it's a very small practice. Um, but about two thirds of my patients maybe are professional athletes and the other third are executives, uh, you know, recreational aspirational guys. Um, but the tenants are the same and, and what helps them do well, be at the boardroom or whatever they're doing. It's often the same things that set the athletes up to do well in their job. And so if we can kind of pull that all together um, again, it goes back to the idea that the really the only part of medicine that informs performance, where we look at healthy individuals and try to make know what makes them perform best, is sports medicine. So it's widely applicable. Yeah, and again, I think it's it's the sleep and recovery aspects, the lifestyle aspects that we can learn from the best athletes in the world, are actually highly attainable. I mean, you and I may not be able to dunk from the free throw line like uh, Michael Jordan or, or LeBron, but speak for yourself, we, Will. Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> well, but but we, you know, but we can we can adopt a lot of the same sleep methodology, recovery methodology that they do, right? Yeah. And I think that's that's a powerful bridge between the best athletes in the world and everyday consumers. Yeah, and it's actually an area where you might perform better than they do. Um, yeah. Right. When we start to look at numbers on some of the best performing athletes, sometimes just by necessity, those things suffer a bit and, and sometimes cyclical or whatever, but totally. um, yeah, I mean, we can, we, we can excel in our own spaces. Okay. So now we, we talked about sleep. What about on the recovery side? What are some things that the EF cycling team specifically is doing to help recover? It's pretty in-depth uh, because, again, that's a big determinant of how well we do in the race as a whole. So nutritionally, there's a big aspect that, that focuses on nutrition and that from the time they cross the finish line, it's getting carbohydrate into them to replenish glycogen. It's following that up with more carbohydrate plus protein, getting some real food in them, and then having a, uh, 
a kind of a cadence to their eating the rest of the day, the rest of the afternoon. We travel with a chef um, who's got her own chef truck and makes just amazing food for the guys. And so that nutritional component really over the last 10 or 12 years has really been just taken in by the teams and totally managed. Whereas it used to be left to the hotels. You'd show up, the hotel had pasta and red sauce and overcooked chicken and like that's what you performed on. So we've really taken a much more scientific approach to that. There's massage, there's uh, devices like the Normatec recovery boots. I mean, we kind of employ as many of those things as we can throw at it to, to improve recovery. And where are you at on, on a lot of cold therapy? Do you guys like icing, cold yes. showers? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, think it, I think it's a great tool. What's difficult in Europe is it's very hard to find ice. Uh, oh, there we, you go. Oftentimes you'll go to a hotel and say, hey, we want to put together an ice bath for some of the guys. Can we get some ice? And they'll bring you a cup like this from the bar <laughs> begrudgingly. Right? They're like, oh, I guess you can have this. So oftentimes we just can't make that happen. Um, it can Isn't be cold funny? showers. I mean, that's amazing. It's, it's crazy. It's yeah. cra- I mean, the, and it's just a, a cultural difference. It's not that they don't have the capability. They just don't put in these big ice machines because they're not drinking it. They don't use it. But every competitor is dealing with those same cultural diff- you know, issues too. So right? It's a it level playing field. Yeah. Level playing field. Yeah. Uh, so, so you like cold showers though? I do. Well, I mean, I think that there's utility for them. I will say, I think there's individual response to them as well to, to any of these modalities. Right. So in general, what we find in sports medicine literature, when looking at things like this is there's not great evidence for any one recovery tool. You can kind of find studies for or against. And, and when you weigh it all out, it's kind of just you know, flat line. Um, but we know that for individuals, when you implement certain things, the response can be pretty substantial. And so using something like WHOOP to measure for an individual, you know, if we implement this strategy, cold showers, ice baths, whatever, for a week, what does that look like? If we take that away and instead do massage for a week, what does that look like? You can start to, to find what each person's ideal recovery regimen looks like. I love that because I, I talk all, all the time about how people can use WHOOP to sort of A-B test what's good for them, right? Like yeah. you, you've got a control and then you introduce something new. Does the new thing help? Yeah. I love that. What's, what is, uh, what's an example of something that you've just seen a, a really wide split on in terms of this works amazingly well for one person and terrible. For, like I remember the paleo diet had this, you know, huge, uh, huge moment. This is maybe a few years ago. I mean, you keep me honest on this, but like maybe it's four or five years ago. And we worked with some professional athletes whose data looked amazing. And then we worked with some high profile athletes, like even like a LeBron James and their data was like totally out of whack. And I was just, I was so blown away by how wide the spectrum was. It wasn't like marginally better, marginally worse. It was like profoundly different results. What are, what are some examples like that for you? Well, as soon as you said that, I was going to say diet because diet is something that people are very dogmatic about. They, they latch onto something and say, this is the only way to do it. But what we know is it may be a great way to do it for them, but not their peer or somebody who's doing the same thing. And being able to measure the response to, to something like diet over the course of you know, a month, try an intervention, try a, a dietary technique, measure for a month, you can know whether it's a good idea for you. It doesn't mean that it's trash for the other person that it worked for. It just means you know, maybe it wasn't great for you. Diet's a big 
interest of mine. It's kind of like religion and politics. You know, a lot of times in the sports world, you just want to avoid the topic because somebody is so dead set on their diet being the perfect for everyone, right? Yeah. And so I like to take a much more objective approach. And if an athlete comes to me and they want to perform as a vegan or a total carnivore, great. Let's look at that. Let's see how that works for you. Let's check some blood work. Let's look at your performance. Let's see how to set this up best. To me, there's no right way. There's just a lot of small boxes you've got to tick along the way to get your diet right from a overarching standpoint. And then we look at things very situationally, you know, periodization of diet. Are you, are you in a training phase or are you competing? Are you looking to adapt at the moment? Or are you looking to recover? Because those are very different scenarios. And we know that adaptation can be hindered by certain dietary inputs and supplements, you know, high levels of antioxidants and things like that. You may not get as fit as a result of the training you're doing because of what you're taking or eating. But if recovery, like at the Tour de France, day-to-day recovery is more the goal, then your diet and supplement regimen may look very different than when you're just trying to get fitter. I love that. So what would be some things that you would be more focused on from a diet or supplement standpoint to emphasize recovery? Some of the interesting things that we've seen in the literature are uh, the addition of high levels of antioxidants while training. So what happens when you're exercising, your body creates or produces uh, free radicals, reactive oxygen species. And there's been this mentality for a long time that you've got to get rid of those. Those are bad. You've got to buffer them, take antioxidants, get rid of them. But what we've learned is that they're actually, they serve a purpose. They're a signaling molecule in the body. And as those reactive oxygen species go up, it's part of the trigger to your body to say, hey, this was more than we were up for. We've got to adapt, get stronger, so that next time we see the same stress, the body's in a better place. So if you knock those down immediately, you, you blunt some of that signaling process and, and decrease how fit you may get from that one workout. Now, it's not a light switch. I mean, you'll still benefit from the workout, but the idea is to be as efficient and effective as possible around that training session, around everything you do. Yeah. So it may be advice to not take a multivitamin during a big training block, or it might be advice to just time that differently. Don't take it within five or six hours of training. And let's, let's let that signaling process happen before you throw the antioxidants in. Got it. Because they're going to reduce the, the levels that you just described. Right. Going to turn down that signal. It's fascinating. And from a pure, from a pure food intake, it sounds like your, your team is, you know, everyone's got their own preferences and, and things that work for them. For sure. And a lot of that's trial and error. Um, you yeah. Know, when you get to that level, you kind of know what suits you well. Um, they know what they like to have on the bike. They know like, you know, what they want to have for breakfast and dinner. Um, but we also try to dig into that trial and error process and help them with it. So, you know, with some of the cyclists, a lot of my golfers will implement continuous glucose monitors and look at 24 seven glucose curves through a day and see, you know, in a given climb or on the 16th green, you know, if they report some mental fogginess and we say, Hey, well, your glucose had plummeted. You were 65. When did you eat last? Oh, well, I kind of forgot. Um, We can help tailor some programs to put them where they need to be to perform best. So interesting. What do you think of glucose monitoring, broadly speaking? Do you think that's something that 
you know, should everyone wear a 24-7 glucose monitor for a week at some point? For a week, yes. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's probably one of the most underutilized tools that we have in medicine um, because you get that instant feedback. So you take a patient who, whether it's from a performance standpoint or a health standpoint, they're suffering, say someone, a health standpoint. They, they go to the doctor, they've got a slightly high glucose, slightly high A1C, which is another me- measure of, of glucose. Um, and the doctor said, hey, you got to eat better and exercise. Come back in six months and we'll recheck it. What does that mean? And when you come back in six months, you have a hard time knowing what you did that affected things. But if you throw a sensor on and can eat a meal and then look at your number, go for an exercise session, look at your number, you have instant feedback. And so what I've seen with my patients from a health or performance standpoint is that that instantaneous feedback is it provides kind of the, the, the lever they need to move them in the right direction. Um, and a lot of them come back and they say, can I get another one of these? Cause they last two weeks. They're like, can, can we keep doing this? <laughs> now, if an everyday consumer's listening to this, how, how would they find uh, a glucose monitor? How would they be able to do that? Um, it, right now, primarily it needs to be through your doctor. Um, okay. their prescription, uh, based, you gotta have a prescription for it. Uh, they're not necessarily expensive. Some of them are, but some are like 60 bucks out of pocket. Um, there are some companies that are out there at various stages of development where it's going to be, they'll be geared toward consumers. And so um, I don't know where the different companies are in, in their stages, but I think some are already taking people uh, where you can basically get online and a doctor within their company will prescribe one to you and it gets sent to you and you can use it along with their software and things like that. Now, is that something you did with Scott Stallings at one point? We've had Scott on a number of uh, glucose meters. Because his, his transformation has been incredible. Uh, yeah. he, you know, he, this is a guy, for people listening, professional golfer who had chronic fatigue to now professional golfer who's maybe the fittest guy on tour. I mean, I would say hands down the fittest guy on tour. There's yeah. some guys now who are nipping at his heels, but um, he... Yeah, he, he's super fit. Yeah, and, and he mentioned, normally I wouldn't talk about patients publicly, but he mentioned, he's like, go for it. You know, tell the story. Um, so, you know, I started working with Scott three years ago when he was, I think he was about 240, 250 pounds maybe when he came into my office. Um, he's now 185, 190. Um, Shredded. muscle. Yeah. Shredded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've used things like glucose monitors along the way to help dial in his diet. Um, we do lactate testing to look at both the fitness component, but also kind of get a look under the head, hood physiologically to see, is he, is he physiologically efficient? Is he burning fat when he should be, car- carbs or glycogen when he should be? And so we've used a lot of those tools to tailor that process. I want to be clear, I don't take any... Uh, any of the credit for Scott's transformation. He, <laughs> he did the hard work. His uh, trainer, Adam, who I think you've met, Adam Curley, yeah, totally. yeah, great is guy. awesome and really led the charge on that. Um, but hopefully I provided a little advice here and there that may have helped him out. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's, let's talk about EF cycling. We're now underway at the Tour de France. What can you tell us about what you're seeing with Whoop and the data and, and how, you're, how you're using it? Yeah, so this has been fascinating. I think I think people who are cycling fans will be interested to see the Whoop data as it comes out because you know, 
as a recreational cyclist, you, you're wearing your whoop and you're on the bike and you kind of see the numbers and you're like, I think that was pretty good. We've had some guys in years past, um, you know, Nielsen Palace has been wearing whoop for a while, Lawson sure. Craddock, obviously. Um, and so we've had little views into the data here and there, but to have the whole team on it has been fascinating. So what I've been interested to see is like the daily strain scores, which it's the average isn't 20.7, but the, the number I see most frequently is 20.7. And I, I know it goes to 21, right? Yeah, it's very hard to get to 21. In fact, we, we're not convinced it's actually possible without dying because you have to be at like 90 to 100% of your max for 24 hours. But 20.7 for people listening is insanely hard. I mean, I ran the Boston Marathon. I got like a 19.9. So, you know, these guys are doing just an insane amount of strain every day. And that's day after day. So it's, I'm looking at one guy here, 20.7, 20.7, 20.7, And these are with recovery scores that are anywhere from 20s up to 80s. Um, To your point, you know, some days you can recover well. Some days it's a long transfer, late dinner, short sleep, and it is what it is. And one of the things I always try to impress upon my athletes is when they're looking at this data, a recovery score of 28 or 31 or some of these that we see, it doesn't mean you can't perform that day, right? Don't, don't catastrophize it, but we don't want to see that trend out for, you know, a week at a time. We've got to address it if it's happening day after day, but we'll see some low recovery scores and we'll see them pop up to like an 86 or a 67, 87. So they find that way to, to get that recharging in there and go again the next day. It's been fascinating to me to, to, to see this. Um, and we've got it on our staff too, which I didn't know, I don't know if you're aware of, but being able to look for me, typically I'm at the tour. I can't go this year because of the travel ban. Um, but being able to see uh, our staff as well and our, our directors, our coaches, you know, making sure that they're recovering day to day, that they're in a place where they can you know, mentally approach the the task at hand which is logistical it's competitive all the things they have to manage uh, it's been really fascinating yeah the remote monitoring aspect of whoop is something i've i've always been quite proud of because you know my experience as a college athlete was like okay well you're with us for three hours but like what are we doing the rest of the day or yeah. even you know off season, like how are people training? And, and, you know, you sent, you have like an Excel all of a sudden that's like everyone's writing in their workouts or whatever, but that, that's what I think is cool about whoop is that you can look at every single person in real time. Where are they at? Yeah, for sure. And in cycling, we've, we have a long history of monitoring athletes during their training. Um, looking at all the metrics that we talked about earlier, power, heart rate, all those things in, in databases that are pretty powerful, but that's only, three to six hours a day. And we don't know what they're doing the rest of the time. Um, totally. And I don't mean that like they're going out and drinking and partying. It's more like it's very hard for us to help them with poor recovery, fatigue, things like that. If we've only got a, a very myopic window into their day, but we can open that up and see everything that's going on. It just serves. It helps us be much more helpful to get them to where they need to be. Yeah, and it's and, and it's sometimes can be these sort of small things you wouldn't even think, but they end up playing this huge role in, in recovery or whatever. I'd I say mean, it's frequently that. I mean it's yeah. it usually it's not the the 
groundbreaking thing that you figure out on how to get somebody to recover. It's just noticing that, Oh, you wait, you're doing that every day. Well, let's take that out and see what happens. And then things turn right. I remember we worked with a college tennis team that was overtraining because the guys were so competitive over ping pong of all things. And they would nice. have these like two hour ping pong matches and like, why, why is everyone on the team getting like injured? And, they, and it was just like, turned out it was just this like weird, small little hobby that no one thought of as strain, but it was, you know, it was running these guys down. Um, yeah. So, okay. So let's say you wake up and you're looking at someone's data and maybe they're in the red uh, you know, they have a red recovery on whoop. Mm-hmm. What, what might you do differently than if they say we're in the green that day? Is there something specific for that morning you might think about a little differently? It depends on whether it's a competition scenario or a training scenario. Um, if it's competition, maybe, but probably not. Uh, we probably just have to push through unless there's a scenario where in say the tour de France, you've got, two or three guys that you may be trying to get into the break, which is going to be, they're going to be off the front for three or four hours working super hard. And one of those guys who's kind of designated for that. If they wake up with a recovery of you know, 18, you might say, Hey, we're actually going to hold you back and let these two guys try to get in. But typically I feel That's like cool. So it's fact of, you know, thinking about how it could, you know, affect a little bit of the strategy. All right, we're not going to burn this guy out in the front. If this person's already run down, we might put someone else there. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, but resources being limited in terms of, you know, riders and, and competitive strategy and those things, more often than not, you just have to go for it um, in the competitive scenario. Yeah. But in training, that's a totally different thing. So in training, um, you know, even building a training program around uh, HRV, which has been pretty well studied, has been shown to allow someone to progress much more quickly and consistently without injuries, without setbacks. And so using that to say, okay, you've got a six hour ride plan today as you're training, but you, you just woke up and your HRV is tanked. Your recovery score is tanked. You only slept five and a half hours. Like let's switch this. You're supposed to do the long ride today and have an easy day tomorrow let's flip those, take your recovery now, do the long one tomorrow when you're presumably going to be recovered and less chance of injury, illness, better response to the training. Um, That is really effective. Yeah. I mean, HRV for me personally, was the most fascinating thing that I did. You know, I did research on when I was an undergrad at at Harvard. I mean, that's how I got into the space. I, I did a lot of physiology research and I, you know, I read something like 500 medical papers and I don't know, maybe two thirds of them were about HRV. And I was just like, this is the coolest thing. It's the, and truly it was being used by the world's best cyclists, but it was also being used by like the CIA for lie detection. And yeah. it was being used by cardiologists to predict heart attacks. And but I you had remember, to go get a 12 lead EKG. Like you well, couldn't th- just Thank do you it for daily. saying that because I remember I was like, but wait, you have to go like get hooked up to a, an electrocardiogram for this or wear this ridiculous chest strap all the time. And so the, probably the single greatest accomplishment of Whoop from a technology standpoint was that we were the first product to measure heart rate variability accurately from the wrist. Yeah, And a, which, and a lot of it was from that research because it was just like, it was so obvious to me that that was the future. You mentioned some of the chest straps that came out. There's still some devices or apps and things that use that. But the problem I always had with that was 
immediately you wake up and you put this thing on, even if your goal is to kind of lay there quietly in bed and you're not going to start thinking about things. And, but no, the mind starts going, you know, you, you totally. got to get up, go to the bathroom, whatever. It's not a clean measurement. And so being able to measure it at night when there's, I won't say no other inputs, but minimal inputs otherwise, um, it's just such a better use of the data, even than you know, the 12 leads that we had in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. Funny enough, for about a year and a half, I did that chest strap thing every single morning. Yeah, me too. And so, and so I figured out, you know, okay, if you're lying down, you get a better reading. If you get, don't have to get out of bed, you get a better reading. Yeah. If you can breathe um, a certain way, like you yeah. can game it. Yeah. Yeah, you could totally hack it. And so when I met with sports teams, they're like, oh, don't worry. We've got this HRV thing figured out. We've got, you know, chest straps. They'll show up to practice. We'll get it on them. And I was just like, that's not an accurate reading because yeah. who knows? Did they just drink a cup of coffee? Did they just talk to their agent? Did they just, you know, all these things are affecting that reading. And so yeah. you're, you're absolutely right about, about the control. Uh, what are some other aspects for Whoop in, in your practice? Or how do you think about using it with some other, some other athletes? I'm a big fan of the raw data in Whoop. And I, I don't mean to kind of step away from the recovery score and those things, but I think to your point earlier, when, when you see a recovery score that's red, immediately my, my eye goes to sleep time, deep sleep, REM sleep, HRV, resting heart rate. But looking at those things and saying, okay, we know something's off. Now let's dig into it a little bit. Um, that I found really useful. And to kind of go backwards from that, if we're working on someone's sleep and we're implementing like a, you know, a, a new bedtime for them or, or a consistent bedtime or telling them, hey, put the iPad down and let's read a book. Um, it, it gives us something. It's a measurement that helps us with many aspects of performance and recovery. Um, you know, I may not be looking, if we're working on sleep with someone, I may not spend that much time looking at their heart rate, but I may look at heart rate variability, time of sleep, deep sleep, those things. Um, so really pulling out the individual variables and kind of bucketing them based on what it is we're doing with that person. I find that really useful. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, there's just a lot of different ways to use the data. Obviously, you have your, your own approach, which I think is really thoughtful. How about for you personally? What are some things that you're, you're trying to improve in your own life? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, sleep has been a big one uh, historically coming out of medicine. You know, there was a long period of time where my, my normal bedtime was midnight and my wake-up time was four for years. Um, so tough. Yeah. And, and you know, I kind of – typically I, I thought I did fine with that and you just kind of push through like that's what you do. So sleep has been something for me, although I've gotten it to a much, much better place. So now within sleep, I try to kind of play with the, the stages, try different things, whether it's uh, environmentally, but also with uh, different supplements. So looking sure. at whether it's individual melatonin, 5-HTP, magnesium doses, um, some proprietary supplements that put a bunch of things together and see how it impacts me. You know, I, I definitely do a lot of trial on myself in that regard and then go to patients and say hey this this worked for me it may not work for you like totally you know just laying this out there but this is something to try um i found it really interesting to look at alcohol intake so timing of alcohol amount of alcohol both kind of well documented and, and certainly show up over and over but the type of alcohol so i had this this thing happen a couple of years ago where i came home from the hospital 
and um, I poured a, a really nice bourbon, just two ounces, was going to sip on it while my wife was making dinner, we were getting ready, whatever, drank it, sleep was terrible. It's like, all right, well, that's, it's hard to just pinpoint that. So the next night, I was like, I'm going to try this again. One drink, <laughs> two ounces, same timing, terrible sleep. Um, one of my nurses had given me a really nice bottle of scotch. He was a big fan of scotch and gave it to me. So I was like, the next day I poured a, a same thing, two ounces of scotch, sip on it while my wife's making dinner, slept like a baby. Huh. And so I went, I went back and forth between the two. Um, and I did this trial, not for weeks on end. I didn't just keep drinking, but I kind of <laughs> pull this, this little, this trial out every now and then. And consistently it had that effect. And I have no idea why I don't understand the, the reasons for that, but it's true. And well, so working with patients on what they drink is important too, I think. It's highly personal. And we've seen this like, first of all, some people just metabolize alcohol more effectively than others. And some people it has a profound effect on their body. Golf is an interesting one for this because golfers have been known to have, you know, a drink or two, maybe before even a, a tournament round. And like, for some of our golfers that it doesn't actually affect their data all that much. And then you look at a guy like, like Rory McIlroy told me he's pretty much cut out alcohol because if he has a glass of wine, like it throws off his data that profoundly. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting. What we've seen generally speaking is that the, obviously the longer before bed, the better, right? Sure. Uh, less alcohol, the better. Um, wine's better than beer and clear alcohol is better than dark alcohol so you know wine and vodka maybe are better than a rum that's yeah. sort of that's like generally directionally what we've seen and then of course there'll be people who are complete outliers to all of that yeah yeah and i think i think again going back to this idea that you, you find what's generally applicable and people can start there and test it on themselves um you know i know for me more than one drink of anything is going to pretty much trash my sleep um the best case for me is something pretty light, a glass of wine, maybe a beer at dinner time or before, and then skipping it after. But I do much better with nothing. So, you know, normally five days a week, at least I'm having nothing um, from an alcohol standpoint. But I've got, I can think of one PGA guy that I work with who consistently has better sleep if he has a drink, you know, after dinner, before bed. And who knows, there's probably there's probably a physio physiological component to that, but there's probably a psychological component too of just kind of being part of that wind down routine. And if it's just one drink, um, you know, great. I've got no problem with that. Yeah. Now you're quoted as saying that you push back against the pill for every ill mentality. What does that mean to you? Well, I mean, I think in medicine um, and in our, our kind of healthcare system, within this country and, and I mean, even within the Western world, there's very much this idea of, Oh, this is your diagnosis. Well, here's what you should take for it. And there's a place for that. I've, I've got no problem with the pharmaceutical industry and, and, and medications and those things, but we're far too dependent on it. And so what I like to do is say, okay, if this is your diagnosis, what's gotten you there and how can we kind of reverse engineer this and get you out of it? Uh, medications may play a role in the short term. They may be avoided entirely. They may be necessary, but let's not focus on that as the fix because, you know, if you're not sleeping well, it's not because your body has some inherent lack of ambient, right? right. It's something else you're doing that's making you not sleep well. So let's address that. Um, during COVID, I think this has really been 
laid bare in, in America. Uh, you know, we know that people who, who, who are infected with COVID do much better if they're just generally healthier and in a better place, right? Don't have underlying yeah. conditions. But for years now, it's kind of been like, well, you know, you've got high blood pressure. That's okay. We'll get you on a medication. You know, you've got, uh, you're trending toward diabetes. Well, come back when you have it and we'll start you on a medication. We don't have a medication for COVID. We don't even have a medication that kind of uh, limits your risk. And so we go back to this idea of limiting pre-existing conditions, maximizing uh, fitness and health on the front end. And I think maybe this has been a good reminder to us that we can't just rely on our prescription pad to, to do what's best for patients. I think you're right. And by the way, I, I go a step further with, with COVID where like, I think there should have been a public health announcement that was like, Hey, it's important to get a lot of sleep during this time. It's going to help your immune system or, Hey, it's important to, you know, get some sunlight. It's going to boost vitamin D, you know, I mean, just, just some simple things that maybe can shit, you know, if you have, if you have society at large, just shift in a slightly healthier lifestyle, you, you in turn actually may, may be able to improve outcomes meaningfully. Yeah. And a lot of times it's, it's small contributions from multiple actions. And unfortunately, we're very much in a mindset that things are either effective or they're ineffective, right? Like that, they, they did a study that didn't work, move on. But, and we've seen this in masks, right? Initially, it's like, well, is a mask effective at protecting you? Well, if your endpoint is someone with COVID coughing in your face and you have a mask on, maybe not. But if you look across the population, we know, yes, it's going to decrease incidence of infection. It's going to decrease severity of infection. And what's happening is not the mask is useful or not useful, but it's decreasing exposure, decreasing viral load, playing an important role. But it doesn't make sense to talk about it in a binary fashion. And I think we see that throughout medicine. When you hear optimal performance, who or what comes to mind? Uh, right now, optimal performance is the front end of the Tour de France. I mean, those guys who, when it hits a climb and the others start to peel off, now they've done their job. They're, I don't mean to put them in a bad place, but like the, the domestiques, the workers who get the climbers, the GC contenders for the overall prize to the base of that last climb, they're, I mean, they're incredible athletes, but then eventually they peel off and the, the cream is just left there to rise, right? Like there, you've got the eight, 10, 12 guys who are truly probably the fittest people from an aerobic standpoint or the fittest athletes in the world at the moment. And you get to watch them take off up the hill. And that I think is just, I love it. When you say the fittest aerobic athletes in the world, so just to pressure test that, why would the fittest cyclist be aerobically better than the fittest swimmer, for example, or runner? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's an argument to be made, but I think specifically at the Tour de France, you've got a 21-day race where these guys are performing at that highest level day after day after day. Right now, there there will be strain scores that are higher some days than other days, but they're up there every single day. Whereas a swimmer is going to have big training days. You know, I don't I don't mean to downplay any of that, but they'll have a meet and then they'll have a significant amount of time off and then they'll have another meet. You know, it's it's much more cyclical as opposed to sustained. You see that in triathletes. You know, Ironman triathletes, amazing. Right, they're they're right up there too, um, but they're not doing an Ironman. 21 days in a row. So 
I think there's an argument to be made that in cycling, specifically the Tour de France where you get the best of the best, you can really say that these guys, if they're not the fittest endurance athletes in the world, they are certainly among the top half a percent. Well, Kevin, this has been so fascinating, man. It's been, it's been great spending time with you. And, and I think everything that you're doing within sports is so, uh, so compelling. We'll got to get you back once we, uh, once the Tour de France is close to winding up or, or once it's finished, we can hear about some of the, all the amazing strains and recoveries and sleeps. Let's um, do it. We'll, we'll dissect all 21 days worth of, uh, worth of data. Yeah, that would be fun. Now, uh, where can folks find you if, they, if they're interested to learn more about your work? So my practice is Podium Sports Medicine, and it's uh, podiumsportsmed.com. And then we've got a podcast as well called The Podium that you can find me pretty much one of those two places. Awesome. Well, we'll include that in uh, the show notes. And uh, Kevin, good luck with the rest of uh, the Tour de France. Thanks, Will. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. Thank you to Kevin for coming on the Whoop podcast. Reminder, you can use the code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, to get 15% off a Whoop membership. Follow us on social at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. We'd love to hear from you. Stay healthy and stay in the green.